This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Here's what's on the Oakley Show podcast for Monday, November 9, 2020. In the wake of Alex Trebek's passing, we take a look back at the evolution of the common American game show over the course of the 20th century. And we're joined by Bill Waters to commemorate the life of another man who died over the weekend, famous hockey color commentator Howie Maker. All of this starts now. Passing of Alex Trebek at age 80 on the weekend from pancreatic cancer. Uh, That was somewhat foreseen, although he fought it very courageously in the last number of years. Uh, But how about Jeopardy and uh, whether that franchise... Low, I guess uh, it's been since 64 that this thing first invented by Merv Griffin. Let's find out about all of these questions attendant to that particular idiom. Joining me on the line right now is Olaf Herschelman, author of Rules of the Game, Quiz Shows and American Culture. Olaf's also the Associate Dean of College Operations with the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. Dean Herschelman, good to have you on the Oakley Show in Toronto. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me, John. Yeah, so, uh, you know, when we cite Alex Trebek, I mean, he was uh, iconic in the sense of uh, hosting the show for, I, I think it was about 37 years or something, but a native son here in Canada, and we embraced him. Uh, you know, he's been uh, part of our firmament when it comes to our entertainment uh, quotient that we've sent down to Hollywood. How about Jeopardy, though, now in its absence, in his absence, rather? Uh, can it continue, and if so, how? Well, I think Jeopardy in itself as a format is just very persuasive and very interesting. And I mean, it existed before Alex Trebek with Art Fleming as a uh, as the first host. And I think uh, it's going to be difficult for them to find the right match to uh, to eventually replace Alex. But I think it can be done. All right. Uh, I guess you know if this is the franchise that's bigger than the star or the uh, face of the franchise. Because there was, before Alex Trebek, I guess it was Art Fleming when it was first conceived back in the early to mid-60s. Tell me about that. Let's just start with that, because uh, it was the brainchild of Merv Griffin, the big band leader and talk show host. How did this come into being? Well, basically, uh, following the uh, quiz show scandals in the United States, which were primetime shows, high stakes, focused on high culture returning contestants, the industry had to change. They didn't want to be associated with, uh, with it anymore. So they, they started to introduce shows they called game shows, which were n- apparently not connected to quiz shows. They moved their genre into daytime. It became less demanding regarding knowledge. Uh, everyday contestants, everyday knowledge, gambling, luck, a carnival atmosphere all characterized the shows in the early 1960s. And Jeopardy was really the first show uh, to reintroduce something off on along the lines of more serious knowledge, factual knowledge, et cetera, uh, back into the uh, into the genre uh, when it uh, started back in 1964. So about the scandals. Now, uh, I remember it being depicted rather vividly in the 1994 movie uh, Quiz Show with Ray Fiennes and I think it was John Torturo as... Uh, Herb Stample, who looked like he was the nebbish, who uh, was victimized by all of the... Tell me about... I mean, that was based in reality very much. That was sort of emblematic of uh, the shows, how they were scandalous and rigged effectively, weren't they? Yes. uh, uh, That particular show was uh, 
uh, I think a very good uh, representation, or maybe a little more dramatic than Natibio, uh, but uh, it was a pretty good representation of this, yes, with the uh, highly dramatic uh, primetime shows that basically swept uh, the streets empty when, uh, when they were broadcast uh, every week. Um, so uh, the stakes were very high. I mean, the $64,000 question, for example, obviously had a high, uh, a high win of $64,000 and twenty one. dollars which is to show that Charles Van Doren was on and Herb Stample uh, ended up having contestants winning over $100,000, which in today's money is well over half a million dollars. So that's uh, certainly very impressive uh, uh, for back then. And uh, the other thing that they did is also they started uh, to introduce returning contestants. So then the contestants themselves, as you can see in 21, with Charles Van Doren gained celebrity status and there was increasing interest in having people come back and uh, the audience would identify with them, which was the case with uh, Van Doren specifically. Yeah, well, he was a good-looking guy. Yep. I was going to say, you know, everything. yeah, and his counterpoint there was uh, Herb Stample, who was the nebbish, as we've seen in the movie anyway, albeit uh, maybe a little more overly dramatized. But, you know, when you said that these people kept coming back and uh, winning big sums of money, I guess uh, the $64,000 question, it really catapulted Dr. Joyce Brothers into national prominence, did it not? Yes, it did. And uh, I think the, uh, the, uh, the sponsors and the producers of the show were really not that happy with her. They thought she was a little too um, stale, maybe. Um, but uh, she won anyway because she studied the subject boxing, I think it was, uh, uh, a lot. And uh, she won, and that launched her... Uh, national media career that's correct yeah do you suspect she was coached because uh, as i understand it she knew all the minutiae and real esoteric information about boxing which nobody at that time certainly would have anticipated a woman not being sexist i'm just saying in that context back in the the 50s uh would have thought she would know all the answers even when they tried to trip her up would you think she was coached as some of them were well um there was never any evidence that found that she was coached. So the story is that she just really uh, buckled down and studied every aspect of the subject of boxing as much as she could. And uh, the story also goes that one of the last questions asked a question about boxing that was kind of outside of her regular um, uh, range of uh, expertise that she was supposed to have, which related to, uh, I think the question was about a referee rather than the boxers themselves. So I'm not sure that Joyce Brothers in particular was coached. And there was certainly from the congressional hearings, there, were, there was no evidence that uh, that connected her to being coached. But she was also not that popular with the producers of the shows. Yeah, uh, Olaf Herschelman's with us. Author, Rules of the Game, Quiz Shows, and American Culture. They're so much a part of the firmament now. We're talking about the passing of Alex Trebek, who was the face of Jeopardy. Whether or not it continues on as a franchise, uh, minus Alex, it'll be interesting to see how that is perceived by the public. But in the sense that you were talking about, you know, uh, Congress. Uh, Congress, the courts got involved because of the scandals of the day uh, with these shows and losing, I guess, public faith or making the public cynical. That's really the genesis for Jeopardy, if I understand correctly, because Merv Griffin's wife uh, kind of said, rather than, you know, uh, 
why don't you just give the answers up front and let the contestants cite the question, which was a real spin on the format. Uh, is that is that a true story or apocryphal? I think that's a true, true story, but I think it's just a little twist to, again, make the show not connect to the old rigged uh, quiz shows from the 1950s. I mean, of course, you could still rig it if you really wanted to, but it was a cute way of... Uh, Making it uh, make, uh, setting, setting jeopardy apart from what we had before, so that uh, that worked in that sense, <laughs> and it became a bit of a trademark for them to uh, to phrase it as a, a question rather than an answer. <laughs> so, what to what do you attribute uh, the sustainability of these shows uh, and their popularity? They don't go away; they just do get uh, new people. Like you know, uh, assuming the. The, the fronting the programs, uh, you know, I guess Drew Carey, uh, I can't even remember now who he supplanted. Uh, I'm surprised they haven't come up with a new version of Hollywood Squares, uh, enough B-listers there to uh, fill a, a number of deuses. But what is the reason for the popularity of the genre? Well, I think there are two things that are going on. I mean, one is simply the uh, popularity in general of uh, trivia and parlor games. I mean, there are games like Trivial Pursuit and parlor games that people have played for decades uh, that are fascinating to people uh, in itself. And uh, I think uh, seeing that represented on uh, on television or previously on the radio makes it exciting for people. The other thing is that the genre is also really attractive for broadcasters because um, once you have uh, the concept for the show, you basically need a host, maybe an announcer, and a set, which may be expensive to construct initially, but once you have it, it's there, and you can crank out five, six episodes a day, and the cost for that becomes actually relatively small. Even if you give away prize money, fifty, dollars $100,000, compared to what a sitcom costs per episode, per 30-minute episode, it's a very good deal. So uh, for broadcast networks to uh, who face themselves having to fill uh, morning television, afternoon television, uh, they do it with cheap programming if they can, with talk shows, with uh, game shows, or maybe with soap operas. And that's, uh, that's one of the things that, uh, that filled this kind of space. Seems reasonable. I mean, it's the game show network, actually, uh, has proliferated as a consequence as well. But uh, in light of the passing of Alex Trebek at age 80, uh, it's good to contextualize the whole genre. And I appreciate you doing it for us this afternoon, Olaf. All the best to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You got it. Olaf Hersherman, again, author of Rules of the Game, Quiz Shows and American Culture. Passing on the weekend of Alex Trebek at 80 and Howie Meeker at 97. And uh, to that extent that uh, somebody who knew both gentlemen, Bill Waters, William Wayne Waters, the former GM of uh, assistant GM of the Toronto Maple Leafs and friend, I think, still to the Oakley show. Bill, how's how are things going? Very well, John, and thank you very much. Of course, I'm a friend of the Oakley Show. I told your producer, Mike, I said, I do anything for John Oakley. Wow. All right, well. I I appreciate you saying that. That's quite the uh, ringing endorsement. So, Bill, uh, I hope you're keeping well and away from this COVID nonsense. We've talked about it, but, uh, you know... uh, it's interesting because of so many people passing, but Howie Meeker, he passes, I guess, of natural causes, 97. What a long storied life. Uh, and you, you knew Howie Meeker, obviously, from uh, being in the hockey trenches all those years. Uh, when did you first meet him? 
Well, I first met him, I think, in uh, when I was general manager, um, or assistant general manager. He was in the coach's room after a game. I didn't really uh, get to know how he got well, except through my mother. And my mother was from Stratford, Ontario, and he was the heartthrob of Stratford, a young kid from Shakespeare, which is just down the road on Highway 7 toward Kitchener. So I kind of knew Howie Meeker, not really personally, but my mother would always try to find out how he played. He won the Rookie of the Year. He was a part of four Stanley Cup teams, and he was a very astute gentleman who uh, I ended up going into the Wall of Fame in St. John's, Newfoundland, and that was the last time that I saw Howie. I think it was about five years ago. Uh, just after uh, I had, uh, well, maybe one time, just after I'd left my position with you. I got summarily dismissed by you, of course, but that is no problem. Um, I was uh, I was in Newfoundland and had a nice chance to uh, reminisce with Howie. He uh, ran a sporting goods store in Newfoundland. I never got to see that. Uh, but uh, in the latter part of his life, he was out in Vancouver, on Vancouver Island, and... Uh, was very good on Hockey Night in Canada. He was a very good analyst and a pretty good, well, when I say a pretty good hockey player, when you're on uh, four Stanley Cup winners, although that was when in the Halsican days in the Leafs when uh, winning the Stanley Cup was the only thing. And uh, I, I, I was told and I watched him a little on TV. He was a right winger who could score goals and uh, a fine gentleman, member of parliament, uh, continued to play while he was uh, in Parliament, not unlike Red Kelly. So the Leafs may have been shortchanged in a few areas, but not on members of Parliament. <laughs> well, yeah, there you go. Uh, although we know there's still a lot of politicians in that dressing room, don't we? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I hope there's something in there. Uh-huh, yeah, well... <laughs> Uh, let me get around to that. You know, with how he uh, really made his presence known to my generation when he was uh, doing the color commentary, uh, analyzing and things like that, and with, you know, the high-pitched voice and all the G Willikers and golly G and this and that and the other, which, you know, set him apart from sort of the state conservative approach to things, a real button-down uh, inner sanctum. Now, did the Leaf players and management, did they did, did they like Howie Meeker uh, in terms of how he analyzed things? Because some people, I think, uh, he might have rubbed them the wrong way. Oh, yeah, he could have, but that, I, I don't know. I don't like it depends on what you're doing. He started that in the 60s, so, you know, guys uh, wouldn't have recalled him as a leaf, but they certainly would have known he was. I don't think he did anything but uh, make himself proud as to what he did. He wasn't uh, he wasn't a fool. He, he was uh, an educated fool, if he was, and, and he could analyze hockey and his style had, uh, had, had a good edge to it that a lot of people enjoyed. It's just like after a while, the G. Willikers wear out and you move on. And he did, but he didn't complain. And uh, he, he had a full life in hockey. Howie uh, Meeker, uh, I, I suppose, uh, his the toughest time was trying to get over the people uh, in, 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 in the hockey uh, vernacular who didn't like the way he analyzed hockey and didn't like the way he said it. I, it didn't bother me. I, I 
he was my mother's favorite player. So, John, I, I couldn't find much wrong with Howie Meeker. Yeah, boy, otherwise you'd have something to account for on the home front. Because, uh, as you right. say, from the small town Shakespeare and uh, going on to the Leafs, he actually went and did a stint in the Army as well uh, over in World War II and then came back uh, Rookie yeah. of the Year in '47 when Gordie Howe broke in. You know, the four Stanley Cups you cite. He actually went on to coach as well as be the manager with the Leafs for a short spell, too. But the broadcast booth thing, I'm kind of curious because really where uh, I guess he came to the fore after that 72 Summit Series with the Soviets, Howie was one of the first to embrace that, hey, the game has changed. There's a new reality here. These guys can play and they've got a different approach to things. Until we adopt that and accept that, uh, we might get left behind. Uh, that was sort of a watershed moment there back in the early to mid 70s, wouldn't you say? I would. And you know what? He was able to say it because it was not like the criticism of the game, it was just an update on where we were in the game. When the Russians came in in 72 and tuned us up in Canada in the first four games, we were lucky to come out, I think, with three points. It was mainly on conditioning. These guys, uh, because of their commitment to communism, had nothing better to do than to spend a month in July on the Black Sea. And they did more than swim, John. <laughs> They used to get into those funny candies. And uh, they were they were on steroids in 72. God bless them. It's a pretty right. tough role for our guys. Here's our guys. Their only steroid was a can of beer. And so when they come to play them on the 1st of September, these guys are flying. And right. the thing about the Russians, and uh, I had five or six teams that played against them when I was uh, with Team Canada, and they were so strong in their core, so strong on their legs. They weren't a lot of big guys there. Uh, Makarov and Krutov and Larionov. Uh, they weren't there in 72. But this was the type of hockey player you had. And they could go all night, and they had control of the boards, and they, were, they, were, they had to win. That, that, was, that was the deal. It, it was so good playing for either Red Army or the Russian national team, that it was something that they uh, they wanted to continue as long as they could, and they knew what the formula was, superb physical conditioning and team play. Yeah. And that's what Howie pointed out, in particular, team play. And team yeah. play is built upon, as you know, John, give and go, go to the hole, take the puck, don't be afraid in front of the net, and mm. lo and behold, there's a goal. Yeah, he would point out systems. That was the first I'd heard of systems. Bill, uh, while I've still got you here for a moment, very quickly, uh, let me switch to Alex Trebek. I mean, he succumbed to pancreatic cancer at age 80. I was saying, boy, he didn't look 80, but uh, what a career. Almost four decades at the helm of Jeopardy. Uh, what did you know or remember about Alex Trebek quickly? Well, I'll tell you a quick story, John. In uh, 1962, I came back from Toronto, the University of Toronto. As I was a freshman, and I'd played football that year with the Blues, and somebody in Aurelia thought, hey, why don't we ask Billy to come and be one of the judges at the Teen Town Dance, <laughs> which, as you know, was at Kuchichin Park, and quite a highfalutin spot for good-looking uh, gals and guys with lots of money. Mm -hmm. I didn't fit into either, but they invited me anyway. Mm -hmm. So we went, and they told me there would be two fellows from CDC there. So I was talking to the guy who invited me and overcome two guys. 
And the one guy says, hi, Bill. I'm Alex Trebek. I said, oh, hi, Alex. How are you? He said, I'm CBC, and this is my friend, Alan Thicke, and he's with CBC as well. So at the time, I just was terribly impressed with how friendly they were and how genuine they were, both of them. I never met Alex or never ran into Alex Trebek after. I read a lot about him. I play his game every night, uh, and uh, I think I've gotten 16 or 17 on one or two occasions. I can't master it, and I shan't. But that was my exposure to Alex Trebek, and of course, Alan Thick, uh, who was a TV star as well, uh, was a friend that I continued to uh, talk about and talk with. And a short story there, just to show you the kind of guys they were, uh, my daughter was going to California with a girlfriend to uh, go to the wineries and do their things. So, hey, Dad, you think you could get us into the Tonight Show with Jay Leno? I said, what do you mean the Tonight Show with Jay Leno? I can't, I can't, you get, I can't get you into the John Oakley Show. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I, I phoned Alan. Alan said, well, just a second, Delisa. I think I know the floor manager at the Jay Leno. And she said, I'll call you back. He's in the stand. So anyway, it wasn't five minutes he called me back. He said, uh, now here's his name. He said, tell Lori to get, when she gets there, ask for the foreman. He'll be, mm-hmm. He won't be at the door, but make sure. So anyway, as you recall, when Leno did his interview, they had the guy or the lady he was interviewing in the center, and then they protected him on the back, in the second row, with two people. And they told him not to do anything stupid, uh, and just be talking and pretending what a wonderful time you are. Anyway, my daughter and her her girlfriend sat there while Leno uh, in, uh, interviewed a guy for five minutes, and they got the five minutes national TV exposure, and wow. uh, they were forever indebted to uh, Daddy O. Very good, as are we. Bill, uh, i got to let you run, but it's nice again to uh, hear your voice, and uh, we got to talk more often, maybe find out when the uh, season's about to start, if it's in January, what the prospects are for the Leafs. I appreciate your time, as always. Uh, best to the family, all right? Anytime, John. Say you hi to it. everyone I know. You Okay. Bill Waters, former assistant GM for the Leafs. That's a wrap for the Oakley Show podcast for Monday, November 9th, 2020. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 Eastern. Turn the dial to 640. Listen live at 640toronto.com or search the name John Oakley on Spotify. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio. 